good to see you all again. Uh, let me just find our passage. Uh, just a few things before I go into the Bible reading. Uh, we do have a few new people here today, so if you are new here, uh, welcome. Uh, we know it's not easy to visit a new church. I was in Korea not long ago visiting a church that wasn't actually my church. So we know it's not easy. Uh, so thank you for the courage in joining us. Uh, if you are new to church completely, uh, again, welcome. Uh, it's great to have you here. Uh, we'd love to have a chat with you after and get to know you. So uh, we do have snacks outside after each service. If you want to join us, uh, you're more than welcome to. We'd love to get to know you guys. Um, just a few things. Um, the camp, uh, I'm excited about the camp, even though it's so still many, many, many months away. Uh, but camp is always exciting. Um, so if you are planning on a trip, around that time, which a lot of people do, I would encourage you to plan it around those dates. Um, please make an effort to be a part of the retreat. It's an awesome opportunity to get to know everyone. Uh, you might see a few faces that you never really get a chance to talk to. You might leave a bit early or they might leave a bit early. Camp is the place to get to know people well. Um, and just one more thing, actually two more things I lied. Uh, the women's conference, uh, if you are a woman, and you haven't signed up, sign up. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to put it any other way. Sign up. It's going to be awesome. Uh, we've revealed who the speaker is, uh, Julie, uh, Julie Hong. I met her first at New Zealand Costa, and the very first thing when I spoke to her that went through my mind was, if we have a women's conference, we have to get her. Uh, she is, I cannot think of a better person to lead this conference. She's just a wealth of knowledge a wealth of energy, like unlimitless, overflowing energy for those that do know her. Uh, and she just loves getting to meet God's people. Uh, so if you aren't, or if you are planning on doing anything on that day, September 9th, just cancel it and lodge your interest for the Women's Conference. Uh, one last thing. Um, this is completely unrelated to anything. Uh, Actually, no, it is related to us. We had Daniel and JY get married yesterday. I don't think they're here today. They might be on their honeymoon. Uh, but if you wanted to send them your congratulatory message on social media, or even when you see them, uh, please do so. It was an amazing wedding. And we got to see a, a familiar, friendly face in Pastor Eddie. Um, I, I realized when I saw him how much I missed him. Um, he, he, there's something just special about the way he preaches. It was just a, a short five-minute message that he gave, but I felt so blessed by it, and I'm sure everyone that was there felt blessed by it. He's just, God's just given him such an amazing gift in preaching. Um, he has started a new role uh, at a, a church in Windsor, um, so please keep them in your prayers. Um, and if you don't know who Pastor Eddie is, I encourage you to scan the QR code, find our YouTube channel, scan back and just listen to all of Pastor Eddie's sermons. I'm so glad we've kept a database of all his sermons. He is, for me, and I don't say this like, I said that Pastor Alvin was one of the greatest Old Testament preachers in Sydney, if not Australia. I think Eddie's just the greatest Korean English speaking preacher in Australia, period. Like, no one comes, not even Alvin. I hope Alvin's not watching. But Eddie's, like, just head and shoulders above everyone. He's just got such an amazing gift and for those of you that were here when Eddie was here, you guys know what I'm talking about. Anyways, uh, let's jump into today's passage. 
Mark chapter 8, verses 11 to 22. Mark chapter 8, verses 11 to 22. Uh, we're jumping back into our series in Mark. So Mark chapter 8, verses 11, sorry, to 21, sorry. Uh, and the word of God reads, The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we jump back into our series in Mark's Gospel, uh, we will examine this interaction that Jesus has with the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders of the day, followed by this interaction that he has with the Chosen Twelve. Uh, Father, help us to understand the significance of these interactions, how this living word is relevant to us today. And Lord, we pray that as we strip away everything in the Christian life, we, we, we pray to be able to see what is most important. Not religion, but the person of Jesus Christ. So Lord, we pray through your word that we would have an encounter with your son that will shape us, transform us, and completely alter uh, any misunderstandings we might have about the life that you desire of us. May you watch over the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we've taken a, a break from Mark's gospel for a few weeks. Uh, I'm excited to jump back in where we left off. It was a struggle, to be honest, uh, to preach from different passages and then come back into the series of Mark. Uh, but just a quick refresher. Uh, we left off in our last passage in Mark with Jesus miraculously feeding 4,000 people using a limited amount of food. Uh, if you recall, Jesus had been going back and forth. He'd been traveling by boat, and he kept going from the western to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, then back to the western side again. Just this back and forth trip, and it was in the last package, passage that we unpackaged that this, this miracle of the 4,000 people that were fed, if you included women and children, probably would have been close to 15,000 people altogether. They were predominantly Gentiles because this miracle was performed in a Gentile region called Decapolis. Decapolis was a term that referred to 10 different Gentile cities, kind of like, like the closest thing we'd have is the Shire, like Shire. It's not the Shire, but as in 
like, you know, Parramatta Shire would include, like, Granville, Harris Park. That's what it was. Um, and then Jesus, after performing this miracle, gets back onto the boat, and he heads to a district called Dalmanutha, which is where he lands in today's passage. And it's across the Sea of Galilee again, to the western side, and he lands in Dalmanutha, which is near Capernaum, which is where his ministry headquarters are. A bit of trivia, it's near the town of Magdala, which is where Mary Magdalene came from. Um, but Jesus gets into the boat, crosses the sea, and then the moment he lands in Dalmanutha, uh, there are a group of people waiting for him. The Pharisees, the enemies, the opposition of Jesus. And these Pharisees in verse 11, it says that they came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Now, it's clear from Mark's account that their only desire in this encounter was to argue with him and to test him. That's what Mark says. What did they want to argue with him about? Uh, probably a lot of things. Um, most of it, however, would have been related to the content of Jesus' preaching message. Um, there would have been a lot of things, but I'll share, I'll share three things that I think were probably the top three. The first uh, was that they would have taken exception to Jesus' claim that he was the messianic king. If you remember John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, when John the Baptist was preaching before Jesus appeared on the scene, you could paraphrase his entire ministry with the words, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, or repent, for the kingdom of God is near. For those that like movie trailers, it's like, you know, repent, because the kingdom of God is coming soon, like to, to a theater near you, something like that. And then Jesus appears, and the message changes from repent to the kingdom of God is at hand or near or coming soon to repent, but the kingdom of God is here. And how do we know that the kingdom of God is here? Because the king is here. And the Pharisees would have taken exception to this kind of a message. Because here he is, to them, in their eyes, here he is, Jesus of Nazareth, who I mentioned kind of equates to like a lower demographic part of society, like regionally. Like I, I used Mount Druid. I'm not going to use Mount Druid as a joke again. But like a town where you think no one prominent's going to come out of. That's where they knew Jesus was from. And they're like, this guy can't be the Messiah. He's from that part of the world. And so they would have taken exception to the fact that Jesus was saying, you know what, this, this Messiah, this Messianic King that the Old Testament just kept talking about, the, 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 the new everlasting King that's going to sit on the a throne of David forever and ever, that you've been waiting hundreds of years for, it's me. Not me, but like that's what Jesus was saying. And so the Pharisees would have taken exception to that. The second thing that they would have taken exception to was his claim that he was not only equal to God, but God himself. Uh, they would have taken exception, exception to the claim that he was the Messiah, but to equate himself to God, that, that, that for them would have been like blasphemy. That's the worst thing you could ever say. But we see Jesus perform miracles that seem to show indications that he is divine. For example, the feeding of the 4,000. He creates food out of nothing. Kind of replicating the same creation power that we see in Genesis. If you read in Genesis, uh, if you read 
in the Septuagint, and I think in the Vulgate, like the, the, the Latin and the Greek version of the, the, the Old Testament in Genesis, it uses this term ek nihilo, which means out of nothing, God created everything. And what we see in Jesus feeding the 4,000 and the 5,000 is the same creation power being demonstrated. Because even though he did use a couple of loaves, ultimately, all this food to leave 12 basketfuls, it came out of nothing. We see another indication of Jesus' divine qualities in Mark 2, where he heals a paralytic man and there's tension that he creates with the scribes. Because he does something very specific. He doesn't just heal this man, which in itself is amazing. But the scribes make an observation. Because Jesus forgives this man of all his sins. And the scribes make a rightful observation. They say, who can forgive sins but God alone? And if that isn't blatant enough, that he's giving an indication that he's God, uh, Jesus says in John 8, 58, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I am who I am. That phrase, that, that name that God gives to himself in the Exodus account, Jesus says, you know what, that, that was me. And then John chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. So Jesus makes it clear that he's not just equal to God, but that he is God. The third thing, that would have irked them, and this is a bit longer, uh, Jesus would have preached a gospel of grace, not a gospel of works. Uh, I don't know if you've ever read through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7. Um, read it if you get a chance. If you have already read it before, read it again, but read it with this understanding that this sermon was actually written not for unbelievers, but for Christians. Because that, that'll change the way you read Matthews 5 to 7. And it's an interesting sermon because at the beginning of the sermon, the first part of the sermon, um, Jesus kind of talks about this standard of righteousness. But he talks about it by establishing what man's standard of righteousness is by saying, you know what, you've grown up learning this, this, and this, but then here's God's standard. And he sets an impossible standard. For example, when Jesus talks about lust, he describes man's standard of lust. And he says, you know what? Man's standard of lust is don't have sex with another person's wife. Don't even, you know, don't, don't, don't do that. Which is pretty obvious to us. Don't have sex with another person's spouse. But then he gives God's standard. And Jesus explains that God's standard of lust goes beyond that. But even having a remotely impure thought looking at someone of the opposite gender, that in itself means that you've committed adultery in your heart. Then he talks about anger. Man's standard of anger on how we should control that anger is don't kill anyone that makes you angry. Pretty standard. Don't murder. Jesus says that's man's standard. But then he establishes God's standard and says, you know what? God's standard is that you can't even have an angry thought about that person in your heart. If you say anything insult, even if you think it, you've committed murder in your heart. And he elevates and it reveals God's standard as something that's like impossible. Man's standard when it comes to retaliation. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Standard. And you see that in children. Kid hits another kid, that kid hits him back. And Jesus says, that's man's standard. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. 
But you know what God's standard is? Someone slaps you on the left side of your face, what are you meant to do? Give them the other side. Like, come on, you can have the other side. And I remember reading this when I was younger, and I thought, that, that, that's impossible. Like, I know it sounds great, and if we were to be a holy, pious man, it'd be great if everyone looked like that, but the reality is, that's not possible. We can try, but anyone who has siblings knows that it's impossible to not have a thought, like be provoked to any kind of anger. If you're married, you know that you're, I provoke my wife to anger many times with my behavior. You know it's impossible to be that guy 100% of the time. And one of the purposes of the Sermon on the Mount isn't to teach you you have to do the impossible to be accepted by God, but to make you realize that you can't do it by your own strength. And that God's plan for our justification, his acceptance of us, God's plan for our righteousness is not for it to be achieved by doing the impossible, by being that man in Matthew 5 and 6, but by faith. Not by works, but by faith. That's why if you read at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, you might have read that passage that's quite scary. It reads in Matthew 7, 21 to 23. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I, Jesus, will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Have you guys read that before? It's quite a scary passage. So you have on the one hand, what Jesus is saying is that you have on the one hand, people coming to Christ saying, you know what? You should accept me because of what I've done. Look at all the times I've prophesied. Look at all the demons I've cast out. Look at all the mighty works I've done for your kingdom. It's a mode of thought that says to God, I deserve your acceptance because of everything I've done for you. But the earlier parts of that sermon, what did we see? That you can't be that guy. You'll never be that guy. You're never capable of doing enough. The only hope that you will have of Jesus recognizing you on that final day is to give up trusting in yourself, to repent and to throw yourself upon Christ as your only hope and to receive that free gift of grace. So that was a bit of an extended explanation, but I think those are the three things that the Pharisees took most exception towards when, when they saw Jesus. One, he was claiming to be the Messiah. Two, he was claiming to be God. And three, that gospel of grace would have really irked them the wrong way. And so the Pharisees come looking for Jesus. And it says in Mark's gospel, they came to test him and they came to argue with him. And then they ask him for a sign. Give us a sign. And the way they ask for a sign is quite peculiar. Let me read verse 11 again for you. It says, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. They want a sign from heaven. 
Remember that they're upset that he's claiming to be the Messiah, claiming to be God, preaching the gospel of grace, which was contrary to what they taught because they believed in a, a gospel of worth. You've got to be pious and holy and ritually and ceremonially clean. And so they come to test him. They want a sign from him to prove that he's legitimate. We know deep down that they've come to prove that he's illegitimate, that he's not what he claims to be. But when they ask for a sign, notice that they don't ask him to perform the sign. They don't say, well, we want you to demonstrate a miracle in front of us so we can analyze. They don't say that. They say, we want a sign from heaven. Not from him, but from heaven. Why? The reason why is because if you wanted to disprove the legitimacy of his divine power, if you put it in a bit of context, for eight chapters, Jesus has performed nothing but signs. They know that if they ask him, show us a sign, they're going to be rubbing egg in their faces. Because all he's done up until now is perform signs. They're not even trying to discount the miracles because they know they can't prove that the miracles are fake. And so they ask him, not for a sign from himself, but for a sign from heaven. They want something separate from him, which is ironic because if he's claiming to be God, why would you want a sign from God separate from Jesus if they believe that he is God? Oh, anyways, we won't get into that. And so by asking for a sign from heaven, it's not really, for them, it's not really a request to help them believe. That's not what they're after. They have no intention of believing any of the claims that Jesus is making about himself. And remember, Mark notes that their intention is just purely to argue. And so being confronted by all this, Jesus responds in verse 12 by sighing deeply in his spirit. And he says, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. This, this expression of sighing deeply, I mentioned in the past, it's an expression that's like he sighed from his guts, like his bowels is probably the literal way of describing it. And it's, it's an expression of deep, deep frustration. Like it, it bothers Jesus to his core. And this, this saying that why does this generation seek a sign? Um, and I'm not going to give a sign in the Greek. It's actually an incomplete sentence. It says no sign will be given. Dot, 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 dot. And it's kind of Jesus' way of saying, I would rather die than a sign be given. Or when pigs fly, it's kind of the expression. In Matthew's version of this encounter, uh, Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. Uh, and this sign of Jonah can be interpreted in two ways. For those that know the story of Jonah, you know that he spent three days in a fish. Um, so some people interpret that as Jonah's account foreshadows the death and the resurrection, three days. Uh, and some people think that that's what Jesus was talking about. Other people think that the interpretation that Jesus was referring to uh, was that, you know, if you look at the life of Jonah, uh, he never actually performed a sign. He didn't perform a miracle. He endured something amazing in that he was swallowed by a fish and lived in a fish for three days. But he himself never actually performed a sign. Uh, what he did do, though, was that he preached a message of repentance to the people of Nineveh. Took him a while, but in the end, that's what he did. 
Um, and some people think that the sign of Jonah, that's what it's talking about. But irrespective, um, that's what he concludes with. And so for Jesus, you have to remember, he's just travelled from Decapolis, this Gentile region, to Dalmanutha, this Jewish region. He's crossed the Sea of Galilee. And the moment he's landed, he has this confrontation with the Pharisees. And once he has his confrontation, he's done with them. He just says, I'm not going to give you a sign. Gets back into the boat and crosses back to the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee. And he lands in Bethsaida, which if you remember in previous sermons, was kind of like a wilderness town. There's not much there. And so on that journey there, this is where we see the interaction transition away from the Pharisees and Jesus to the apostles and Jesus. Because the the, the apostles, they realize uh, between the 13 of them, they've only got one loaf of bread. Um, here on the one hand, you've just had this interaction with the Pharisees and the apostles are worried about lunch. Uh, and Jesus responds in verse 15. He says, he cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaving of the Pharisees and the leaving of Herod. Uh, now, I don't know much about baking, uh, I know that Elsa bakes wedding cakes. I don't know much about baking. But from what little I do know, I do know that you need leaven and yeast to make the bread rise. I hope that's right. That's what I read. But you need that when you're breaking bre uh, baking bread, not breaking, baking bread to make it rise. Otherwise, you're just left with flat bread. Um, and throughout the Old Testament, you'll find that leaven, this yeast that's used to make the bread rise, it's often used as a metaphor to describe sin, evil, or some kind of corruption. And so Jesus tells them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And he's using this leaven as a metaphor. But the apostles don't get it. They think Jesus is saying, make sure you eat flatbread. Don't, 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 don't buy leaven. Make sure you have flat bread. Uh, and we know this because in verse 16, they start talking about bread. The fact that they don't really have much bread, if any bread at all. Like one loaf isn't going to feed 13 people. And so Jesus, who's just expressed his frustration with the Pharisees, sighing deeply from the bowels, from his guts, he expresses his frustration at the 12 apostles. And he expresses it by asking them a series of questions. He just drills them with questions. Verses 17 to 21, nothing but questions. Jesus, aware of this, that they're talking about flatbread, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And seven for the 4,000, how many basketful of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Like, don't you get it? Now, in Matthew's gospel, he's very clear about what he's referring to when he talks about leaven. Because Matthew 16, 12 makes it clear that when he's talking about leaven, he's talking about the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And this is where Jesus is getting frustrated. Because this whole time, all these signs, one of the things he's been trying to get across 
to not just the apostles, but to everyone. You've got on the one hand, the Pharisees, their teaching of the oral tradition, rule-keeping, piety, tick-box religion. He points out the hypocrisy of that. And he points out that if you were to drill down to the core of Pharisaic religion, and even just religion in general today, if you drill down to the very foundation of how people understand religion and how people understand a person receives salvation or goes to heaven, you could summarize it in one word, piety. Being a good person. You go out into the streets, you ask someone, do you believe you're going to go to heaven? If, if you believe in heaven, do, do you think you're going to go to heaven? They'll say yes. And if you probe a bit further, why do you think that? They will say, because at my core, I am a good person. The gospel of grace, though, the gospel that Jesus was preaching, you drill that down to the core. The foundation is not piety, but it's a person. You drill the gospel down to its core. It's not piety, but Christ. And this was what was so frustrating for Christ. Because you had the Pharisees on one hand who had hardened hearts. They sought Jesus out not to find truth, but to argue with him and to test him. You had the Pharisees on one hand that were doing this. But then you had the apostles who on the other hand, they've been with Jesus for eight chapters in Mark's gospel. It's probably been about two years so far. And they've seen so many miracles. They've heard so many sermons that Jesus preached and all these signs that he performed. They should have gotten and understood what these signs were pointing to. But they didn't. They were thinking about lunch and flatbread. And then that's how today's passage ends, on this note of frustration. Now, I'm not going to have three points today. Uh, I just want to keep going with unpackaging this. Because the passage concludes and it's like with Jesus quite apparent that he's frustrated with the Pharisees. I don't want to dwell too much on that. But I want to look at this interaction, this frustration that he has with the apostles. Because I think it goes beyond them missing this metaphor. It goes beyond them just thinking, oh, Jesus is talking about how he likes flatbread rather than puffy bread. Because Jesus grills, grills them with a bunch of questions, and the devil is in the details, because if you have a look at the questions, I'll, I want to read those again. It says, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? Do you not remember? When I broke five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets of broken pieces did you take up? And the seven for the 4,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? Do you not yet understand? When it came to signs, I explained earlier on in this series what the purpose of the signs were. Make no mistake, Jesus feeding 4,000, the purpose of that sign wasn't for us to emulate that miracle and try to feed 4,000 with so many loaves. The purpose of the signs was to point to and reveal to us the identity of who Jesus was. You know, when Jesus fed the 5,000 and then the 4,000, we did get to see 
the compassionate heart of Jesus in feeding the hungry. But the sign, the purpose of the sign was to point beyond the physical feeding. It wasn't just meant to be a magic trick like Jesus pulling a rabbit out of a hat. But Christ, by feeding the 5,000 and the 4,000, demonstrates that he had power to create something out of nothing. I mentioned earlier, he emulates the same creation power that we see in Genesis 1. And Jesus, the reason he drills them with these questions is, the frustration is because they haven't just seen this once, they've seen this miracle performed twice. And he asked them, you saw me create so much out of nothing. How many baskets were left over? Don't you understand what this miracle signifies about who I am? In essence, he was asking them, do you understand who I am? And that's an important question we should all ask when it comes to our relationship with Christ. Do you understand who Christ is? And this question, the way we respond isn't just... It's not reciting a textbook answer. I get that he's the second person of the Trinity. He's the saviour of the world, the Lord, the Messiah. Not a textbook answer, but at the core of your heart, do you understand who this Christ is in relation to you, in relation to your life? Because having a revelation of Christ versus an intellectual understanding of who he is are two different things. Having a revelation of Christ changes everything for the Christian. It transforms Christianity from being just a tick box religion. I did that, I done that, to being a transforming living relationship with the God of the universe. Because you realize that the Christian faith and the mechanics of the gospel are designed so that it's not grounded and built on rule-keeping. It's not about piety. It's about a person. It's about Jesus. It's not about being the best person that you can possibly be so that he'll accept you, but it's about uncovering the identity of this messianic king that the scriptures reveal to be God himself. And having that revelation about who he is, not just on an intellectual capacity, but on a spiritual capacity. Who he is. That God sent him to initiate and complete the rescue mission of salvation so that you can be in eternal communion and relationship with him. And you know what? We can laugh at the apostles because they do sometimes, if you read through the gospel accounts and the book of Acts, they do come across as a bit slow and dopey at times. But I can't help but think, and I don't know about you guys, but when I reflect on my own life, I cannot help, when I look at my shortcomings, see that I struggle with a lot of the same things they did. Because for the apostles... I can't help but think, you know, they, they followed Jesus. They observed him do ministry for two years up until chapter 8. They listened to all his teachings. And yet they didn't get it. 
And I think part of the reason was because they'd allowed all these things to become familiar and common to them. But they never embraced and deeply reflected, okay, what does this mean? And how should it shape and transform me as an individual? Like, what is this revealing about Jesus and what should it mean for me? They'd become instead familiar with following Jesus. It had become routine for them. That's what church and ministry had become for them. And I would say that there's many times for us where we go through the routine of church for so many weeks, months, and years that church becomes common to us. Aspects of our walk with Christ become common to us. And I say this with a heavy heart. Like, I really do. Like, I, I, I spoke with people during the week when I was preparing this. Should I leave this out? Should I put it in? Even my wife was, like, criticizing the way I preached, saying sometimes, you know, Eddie preaches in a particular way that makes you just want to know Jesus. You just sound like you're telling off people. I don't want it to come off that way. I genuinely say this with a heavy heart and because I care about each and every one of you. I went to Maru on Friday to pray about this message as well. But I say this genuinely with the heart of love. That when you get to a place where church, ministry, your walk with Jesus becomes common and routine, this is a very dangerous place to be spiritually because it cheapens the value and the importance of worship in your life. It will limit your view of worship in your life. And if you get to this point, your Christianity will no longer be focused on a person, but on piety. No longer on Christ, but rule-keeping and checkbox, tick-box religion. It'll be focused on routine, and then it eventually, it'll be focused on you. Your religion will be about you. That's where it ends up. And when that happens, that's where worship starts to feel optional. That's where Sabbath worship starts to feel optional. You know, coming out of COVID-19, you know, we had no choice because of government, government mandates to worship and stream at home. But God's design for the church was never to worship through a TV screen or a computer screen, but to do it in the context of community, worshiping alongside brothers and sisters that love the Christ. When you get to this place, Sabbath worship will feel optional. You'll get to a point where I went to church every week for the last two months. It's okay if I miss a Sunday. And coming to church on time will start to feel optional. And again, I don't say this to condemn anyone, and I'm, I'm confessing as a pastor, I've been through this as well. That feeling where it's like, oh, announcements and worship, yeah, like I can go in a bit late. Because the sermon's really where it's at, isn't it? I don't know if you feel that way about me. But, <laughs> but it can get that way. And I sympathize with you because, I, I, again, as a pa- even as a pastor, I confess to you, I've felt that way. At previous churches, there's been times where I'd, you know, I'd be, do the youth ministry and I know I have to go into the EM service, but it's just I'm so drained and I'm, 
gosh, maybe I'll just miss the worship. But that's a dangerous place to be. Because what does that say about how we view the worship of the king? And again, I just, I just want to make, because I don't want people feel like I'm singling in. Not by intention. I say this genuinely with a heart of love. And the proof is the fact that with this rebuke, the answer to this isn't to come to church on time. That's not what I'm asking for. It's not come to church every week, make sure you never miss a Sunday, come 1.30 or come 1.20, prepare your hearts for 10 minutes in worship. That, that's not the answer. The answer, and I encourage you to do this if you are in this place, because I've had to do it many times as well, and I guarantee I'll have to do it many times in years to come, is if you come to this place, I would encourage you to take time to reflect. Be alone with God. No one's beyond the need for reflection. Not your CG leaders, not your VT leaders, not your pastors or even the elders of the church. Everyone has a need to get alone with God. Reflect. Paul says to the church, reflect. At the end of his letter to the Corinthian church, examine where you are. Test your faith. If you feel like you're stuck, or if your growth is stunted, or if you feel like you're backsliding, and you're focused on the physical, tick box religion instead of the spiritual, you're focused on piety instead of a person, then the answer isn't to immerse yourself deeper in tick box religion. The answer isn't, okay, I better make sure I come to church on time by 1.30 so Pastor Jay doesn't talk about me again. That's not the answer. The answer is to immerse yourself not into piety, but a person. Oh. Christ. Spend time with Christ. Get alone with Christ. There's no secret formula. Just open his word prayerfully and spend some time. Be intentional about spending time alone with Christ. And the transformation, the healing process, it's not going to be instant. It isn't. It's a journey. It takes time. And sometimes your flesh will cry out against it because you just don't want to do it. But if you force yourself to get alone with God and just be honest, I'm just not feeling it. Those times in prayer will start to become some of the most sweetest times you spend alone with God. Because God honours that kind of a sincere prayer where you say to him, I'm not, I'm not even going to pretend I'm where I am. I'm not there. In fact, I'm just an empty, I feel like I'm an empty shell of a person and I know it's not right and I need help. God honours that kind of a prayer. And the reason I say it's some of the sweet, or probably the sweetest moment, is because God honours that kind of a prayer, I guarantee he answers that kind of a prayer. And it'll feel sweet because you will feel the hand of God on your life, healing your heart and bringing you over the course of time to where you need to be. And as you do that, that's where you start to dwell, not on piety, but the person of Jesus. And as you dwell on the person of Jesus, as he heals you, you'll start to realize, wow, he does love me that much. When the Bible describes that he is a merciful God, I can feel it because he's demonstrated it through my spiritual healing. 
And the more you do that, you know, one of the reasons that Jesus says, do you not remember in one of his questions is that when this happens again, you can look back and remember that God is faithful in honouring that kind of a prayer and you'll have every confidence that he will answer again when you get to that place. You will embrace his invitation to start again because you know it's an invitation that's just overflowing with grace. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for Mark's faithfulness and your faithfulness in recording this encounter between Jesus and the Pharisees and Jesus and the apostles. We see the frustration that Christ has with the apostles in just not getting it. And Lord, we're, we're, in, we're in that place so many times in our life. Uh, but we thank you that you don't leave us there. You didn't leave the apostles there. And we thank you that you don't leave us there. That as we walk on this journey with you, that we can be honest with you, sincere in our prayers about where we are, and we thank you that through the gospel, the way you've designed the mechanics of the gospel, that we can learn about the person of Christ, not just on an intellectual capacity, not just on a historical and in a theological capacity, but to be able to taste of it firsthand, your goodness, your love, your mercy, your grace, Lord. And I pray this for all of us, that this would be transformative of the way we walk with you, the way we relate to you, and the way we see you, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.